millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the History of Russia. This is episode 37, Russia and Ukraine. Thanks for listening in. So this week, we'll be pausing the main narrative, and we'll instead be covering a brief history of Ukraine and Russia, oh and a little bit of Belarus, to see how the current situation regarding Russia's recent invasion of Ukraine came about. Plus then I'll be adding in my thoughts around what's currently happening with the invasion and war and how it's all likely to end. And I'll caveat that straight away by stating I don't really know and I don't think that anyone really knows. And anyway, by next week or next month it will have all changed anyway. Nevertheless, I'm not going to let a couple of small things like that stop me endlessly and amateurishly conjecturalising. I'm really not sure if those last two are actual words, but hopefully you get my point. So one further thing, uh, this podcast has up to now mostly covered the period between the middle of the 9th and the middle of the 17th centuries. So for me, and hopefully some of you, the key events during that period are fairly clear. But for the relevant events that occurred after 1645, I've had to do some pretty speedy research and therefore I'm just that little bit less comfortable. Plus I'll need to tread carefully as I don't want to impact my narrative with too many spoilers. Okay, with that being said, how did things get to where we are today? Well, what is today? Well, at the time of writing, it's Wednesday the 6th of April 2022 and the latest phase of the war which started back on February the 24th, is into its 42nd day, with no signs of stopping anytime soon. Russia, which officially views the event as a special military operation and not a war or invasion, seems to have failed to have achieved its primary objectives and is now regrouping its forces to concentrate on strengthening its grip 
in the eastern and southern regions of Ukraine, whilst to the north, Ukrainian forces are taking back areas that were recently in Russian hands and discovering evidence of heinous and barbaric war crimes. And note there my use earlier of the term latest phase, because that's just what the 2022 military events are, the latest phase of Russian belligerence and intimidation against Ukraine that in reality started back in 2014, since which time the West, meaning in the main NATO, the UK, the US and the EU, and its allies throughout the world, have been broadly sympathetic to Ukraine's position without, until very recently, doing anything tangible, and I say tangible through gritted teeth, to support Ukraine or its people. Okay, so from my point of view, that's a quick summary of where things stand. So now let's turn to the shared history between Russia and Ukraine and see what kind of foundation or backdrop that provides. So I thought long and hard, well, at least for a couple of minutes on how to approach this. Do I go backwards from today or do I go forwards from a particular point in time? And rightly or wrongly, I've decided on the latter. And so we'll start back in the mid to late 9th century, just prior to the establishment of the first pseudo or quasi-political entity appearing in the region. So prior to the 860s, there were numerous Slavic tribal groups inhabiting the modern-day Western Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, all speaking their own variant of Eastern Slavic and apparently just waiting around for someone to come and rule over them. Enter stage left, the mainly Swedish Vikings, who, fixated as they were on trade with the Byzantine Empire, established a number of trading settlements to the north near Novgorod, and then eventually all along the Dnipro Valley, and then set about building or creating a kind of joint Scandinavian-Slavic state, which over the next couple of hundred years became centred on the largest and most strategically important of those settlements, Kiev a.k.a. Kiev, a.k.a. Kiev. There seems to be a lot of different ways to pronounce it these days. Bear in mind, though, that Novgorod came in a close second. From the 19th century onwards, historians came up with and then used the term Kievan Rus for this loosely unified multi-principality proto-state. Kievan from Kiev, obviously, and Rus because that is what the early Slavic peoples called the Scandinavians. Uh, Rus is meant to have come from the word rowers. But the term Kievan Rus was never used at the time, and the inhabitants referred to their territory as the Rusiskaya Zemla, meaning simply the Rus lands or the lands of the Rus. By the 11th century, and for various reasons, Kiev's fortunes were waning, and whilst it managed to maintain a spiritual and symbolic hold on the Rus imagination, real power in the 12th century shifted to the northeastern principality of Vladimir Suzdal, and to a certain extent Novgorod. And here we get our first mention of a small fortified settlement called Moscow. Up to this point, any external threats, mainly in the form of frequent raids, had come from the tribal groups living to the south and east of the Rus lands, 
first the Pechenegs and then later the Cumans. But in general, this situation was tolerated by the Rus and the status quo was maintained. That all changed in the mid-13th century when the Mongols arrived on the scene. They hadn't come to raid, but to conquer. And that's exactly what they did, in the most brutal form imaginable, subsequently bringing all of the Rus lands under the rule of the Golden Horde or the Tatar yoke for the next 200 years. During the latter period of the Mongol occupation, as the invaders' hold on things began to gradually slip away, two centres of power emerged. The first was the Duchy, later the Grand Princedom of Moscow, and the second was the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. Okay, so just as a quick checkpoint, it's now the 1400s, and there is still no country called Russia, and likewise, still no country called Ukraine, still no country called Belarus. Okay, so I'm going to try and speed up a bit because we've still got 600 odd years of this to go. To cut a long story short, by the time that the Mongols and the numerous Khanates that came after them had been subdued or neutered, the Rus lands had been effectively split into two political entities. To the north and east you had an independent Moscow, or Muscovy as it was known in Europe, and an enlarged Lithuania which had taken over the former independent southern and western Rus principalities of Halych or Galicia and Volin or Volnia and parts of Kiev, the principality and not the city, or as they were collectively known, Ruthenia or Ruthania. And to cut an even longer story short, and I'm massively simplifying here, eventually by the time of Ivan III's time in charge of Moscow in the late 15th century and early 16th centuries, the Moscow-owned bit became Russia, and Ruthenia, or the Lithuanian bit, came to be dominated by the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which up to now has been one of history's best-kept secrets, but is now starting to get some of the recognition it deserves. So the old Ruthenian lands, already different culturally and linguistically, although Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian and Polish are all Eastern Slavic languages, Lithuanian is different as it's a Baltic language, but let's not get into that here now became further changed by several other factors. With Polish immigration and influence came shared cultural ties, which still exist today. Plus there was the increased prominence of the Catholic Church, and then in the south of the region, and particularly the southern borderlands, or the Ukraina, in a region referred to as the Wild Fields, Cossack and Crimean Tatar predominance started to permeate across societal levels. Can things permeate across? Not sure. But anyway, I've mentioned the Cossacks, and whilst I will be covering all things Cossack in a separate episode, so that serfdom and the Cossacks coming soon, I'll just make a note of that here to remind myself. I just wanted to mention here that between 1648 and 1764, there existed in modern-day central Ukraine a state called the Cossack Hetmanate or the Zaporizhian host, and so the Cossack influence in particular was tangible, hence the words contained within the Ukrainian national anthem, we are brothers of Cossack kin. During the 16th and 17th centuries, Russia and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, 
were locked into a fight for supremacy over the former Rus' lands, a struggle that Russia would eventually go on to win. However, and I think that's my first however of the episode, by the time that Russia had gradually started to get its hands back on most of the old Ruthenian lands in the 17th and 18th centuries, the far western parts came under Austrian rule, they were at least recognised as being culturally separate, hence the terms Bielorussia, or White Russia, and Ukraina, or Ukraine, coming to be officially used for the northern and southern parts, respectively. And with the Russians, who were now solidifying their empire, referring to both, some would say, in an arrogant and condescending manner, as Little Russia's. Similar, but perhaps not quite the same as England and its views on the Scots, Welsh and Irish, oh, and the French, and if you think about it, most other countries at some point in its glorious imperial history. Anyway, that's as may be. Throughout the rest of the Romanov period, Russia's handling of its newly acquired little Russia's did nothing to prove that this attitude was going to change any time soon. There was a, ru- a wave of Russification, which to a degree cancelled out the earlier Polish influence, particularly in terms of religion, with the Orthodox Christian Church re-establishing its predominance. And this was followed by an active state-sponsored campaign to stop the use of the Ukrainian and Belarusian languages. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So now we've reached the 19th century, and we have the Russian Empire, of course, but still no separate national entities for Ukraine and Belarusia. Plus, by 1906, it's estimated that around 2 million Ukrainians had emigrated to other parts of Russia, notably Siberia. Nevertheless, this period saw the early shoots of Ukrainian nationalism start to appear, particularly in those western areas that were still run by the relatively lenient Austrian Habsburgs, and then increased modernisation and urbanisation across all areas acted as the catalysts for the formation of a growing nationalist movement. During World War I, Ukrainians in large numbers, a couple of million fought on the Russian side and a lesser number, around 200,000, fought for the Austro-Hungarian army. And then came the Russian Revolution, or revolutions of 1917, and the setup of the first Ukrainian national state, the Ukrainian People's Republic, also known as the Ukrainian National Republic. The new republic's autonomy was recognised by the Russian provisional government, 
which existed between the two revolutions of 1917. And then following the October Revolution, it went the whole hog and proclaimed its independence from the Russians on the 22nd of January 1918. But the trouble was that the new Ukrainian Republic, which went through a number of transformations and iterations of its own, wasn't the only show in town. You also had at various times within what was an extremely confused period that encompassed the Russian Civil War, the West Ukrainian People's Republic, the Hutsul Republic, the Ukrainian People's Republic of Soviets, plus you had the Tsarist White Russians, the Poles and the anarchists all milling around and looking to gain an inch and turn it into a yard. Eventually, though, the Russian-Soviet regime won through and Ukrainian territory was split, with the lion's share going on to make up the Ukrainian-Soviet Socialist Republic, which was part of the bigger USSR, while smaller bits of land were parceled out to Romania, Czechoslovakia, remember that, and Poland. So we're effectively back to square one, and for the next 70 years, Ukraine is effectively back under Russian control a period which witnessed, in Ukraine, devastating famine, the wholesale destruction of World War II, where, for a brief period, the Germans were seen as liberators, Stalin's brutal dictatorship, and the Chernobyl nuclear reactor explosion. Although, on the flip side, Nikita Khrushchev, when he was a Soviet leader, did add on Crimea to the Ukrainian SSR. Fast forward to 1990. When the Soviet Union finally imploded, it officially ceased to exist in 1991 in a collective decision taken by Russia, Ukraine and Belarus. The Eastern Bloc collapsed and almost all of the former constituent socialist republics, including Ukraine, became nations in their own right. But during the first 15 years of independence, Nothing much really seemed to change. Russia still exercised a kind of de facto control, made easier by the fact that Ukraine's early leaders were all, to a degree, pro-Moscow. The one really notable international event during this time came in 1994 when Ukraine, in return for guarantees of sovereign safety, in an agreement with the US, the UK and Russia, agreed to divest itself of all its formerly Soviet-owned nuclear weapons. Internationally, Ukraine and others, notably Georgia and Moldova, but not Belarus, which has gone its own way, made several attempts to join the EU and NATO, but were thwarted by a combination of Western prevarication, stroke double-dealing, and Russian hostility and threats, which for Ukraine started in 2004 five years into Putin's leadership, with Russian political and economic interference, which was counted to a degree by Ukraine's Orange Revolution. And then in 2014, with the aforementioned military intervention, which has seen Crimea and parts of the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine become effectively annexed by Russia. So, what has that whirlwind tour through over a thousand years of mostly shared history shown us? Well, first of all, that Russia and Ukraine, whilst having shared Slavic Rus roots, differ from one another in terms of culture, language, particularly in the southern 
and western parts of the country. Secondly, it shows us that Ukraine has over, only ever been truly independent for a fraction of its history, something which Vladimir Putin is always keen to point out. And then thirdly, during the period of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, and for the past eight years, Russia has viewed itself as the senior partner, or the elder brother, and sees Ukraine, particularly the eastern part, pretty much as its own territory. So couple that historical background with a number of other supporting factors. And you've got Putin's current mindset. And remember, this is a man who has in his time invaded Georgia, destroyed Chechnya and most of Syria, assassinated in the UK former Russian agents and others opposed to his regime, engineered the Salisbury incident, shut down the free press in Russia and imprisoned, plus tried to poison the main opposition leader. He wants Russia to be great again and views NATO and the West as having, since the end of the Cold War, extended their territory too far into Russia's sphere of influence, leaving Russia without its historical geopolitical buffer zones. And then, of course, there's the attitude to all of this in the West, which until fairly recently has turned a blind eye to it all, minor sanctions aside, and carried on as normal, which indicates to Putin that the West is weak and that he can do pretty much as he pleases. So I think all of that is why we are where we are today. So a couple of final points before I venture into uncharted territory. Rumours abound that Putin is either ill or receiving some kind of steroid-based treatment for a past illness. Either that or he's gone start raving mad, which might explain why he's become what we see today. Because there are further rumours around his supposed isolation and that perhaps relationships with some or maybe all of his inner circle are starting to fray. But then, of course, you've got the Russian people. How do they feel about this? Well, to the majority of us in the West, the Russian people have been brainwashed by, or seem to have been brainwashed by state propaganda, and are just too scared to admit the obvious. But then, on the flip side of that, maybe the vast majority of, of people in Russia are simply fed up with being the world's whipping boy and have gone into sort of backs-to-the-wall mode with a little encouragement. So what is likely to happen next? Well, I think at the moment there's two main views or ways of looking at this. I'm not really sure what Putin's thinking is now, but I'm fairly certain that he didn't think it would end up like this. I think that he thought that Ukraine would have collapsed within days of him marching in. Anyway, let's start with what I call the Western optimist stroke realist view. I'm hedging my bets there. So in essence, this view suggests that Ukraine will continue to resist and maybe even go on the offensive, that Russia will only be able to establish control over Crimea and Greater Luhansk and Donetsk. Economic sanctions will be ratcheted up and start to bite. And in the end, there'll be some kind of diplomatic settlement and perhaps Putin's regime will start to crumble. In the meantime, the West will continue to stand solidly behind Ukraine and that sarcasm, making sure, of course, that it gets no further involved with anything messy, 
Its politicians will continue to have good wars and it will continue to buy Russian oil and gas. The UK will continue to mean that its purposely labyrinthine refugee scheme is working whilst letting Poland, Slovakia, anyone else really, pick up the slack. All of which sounds workable, except that to give up any territory in some kind of diplomatic settlement would mean a Ukrainian referendum would have to take place. And then of course you've got these barbaric war crimes. And bringing Putin to Justin would perhaps, justice would perhaps get put to one side. Although I seem to remember lots of other wars where war crimes have been put to one side. Okay. Then you have the Western pessimist stroke realist view, hitting my bets again. And that goes something like this. Russia continues to grind away for months, maybe years, and eventually takes the majority of Ukrainian territory. Ukraine surrenders, Zelensky flees or is captured, Russia moves in, and then at a future date starts to turn its attention to the Baltics, at which point NATO has a decision to make. A slight variation on this view is that things get so bad for the Ukrainians that NATO has to get involved, potentially risking starting World War III, or instead they do nothing and let Putin get away with it as per Hitler in 1938. I'm not sure though, based on what we've seen so far, that the Russian military is capable of, of carrying out this second option but what do I think? Well, I'm probably, if you push me, going with the former uh, view, or something like it will pan out, but who really knows? What I'd like to see is a more meaningful action from the West NATO, and less rhetoric and posturing. But I'm not the expert. But there is a podcast, In Moscow Shadows, by a guy called Mark Galliotti, and Mark really seems to know his stuff. And it's well worth listening to if you want a good all-round view on what's going on behind the scenes in Russia today. Okay, I hope that you found all or some of today's episode useful, and if not useful, thought-provoking. And I really must apologise again. Since I was ill a couple of weeks ago, my, my voice just doesn't seem to have the oomph that it used to have. Hopefully it will come back. Anyway, next time we'll be back on the main track and we'll be doing a conclusion to Tsar Mikhail's time in charge and then we'll spend some time covering the early part of his son Alexei's reign which will feature what by now have become our four favourite words Sweden, Commonwealth, War and of course however. After that though, there will be episodes covering serfdom, the Cossacks, Tsar Fyodor III who strangely enough, is one of my favourite Russian rulers. And then before we get into Peter the Great, there will be a State of the Nation special, looking at just what kind of country Russia was at the back end of the 17th century. So hopefully something for everyone over the next month or two. Anyway, until next time, and as I always say, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll speak to you all soon.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.